Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 312, recorded August 3rd, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 123. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All stream directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that helps you stay safe online. I'm Tom Merritt filling in for Leo Laporte, who's at jury duty, trying to stay securely off a jury. Uh, but joining us, the star of our show, Mr. Security, the man behind GRC.com, Shields Up, Spin Ride, and more, Mr. Steve Gibson. A pleasure to be talking with you again, Steve. Likewise, Tom. I got to see you when I was up last Sunday for the flagship mission of uh, recording Twit with the gang. So... That was fun, and uh, it's great that we have you to help out when Leo is otherwise occupied. It was great to see that you actually have legs. You're you're an entire human being. Yep, they're all here. Yeah, a torso below the uh, below the waist. So uh, good, and and you're coming up for the uh, for the party as well, right? Yeah, I'll be back. Excellent. Yep, well, I, can't, I can't wait for that. Uh, we've got some great stories uh, to talk about today, and a question and answer episode. Yep, this is, uh, well, this is actually an important um, episode. Also, I I realized, wait a minute, 312, why does that number seem special? Mm -hmm. Well, 6 times 52 is 312. So this is the last episode of our sixth year of Security Now. No kidding. Yeah. And our 123rd Q&A that we've... uh, We've adopted to give our listeners a chance to have some their voices heard and provide some feedback and ask questions and just sort of, you know, close the loop, being social as we all are these days. So uh, we got uh, another great podcast, I well, think. I am honored to be on 312. And and you're, <laughs> you've been doing security now longer than tech TV lasted. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, the finances are even more sturdy than tech yeah, TVs were. So, yeah. <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, uh, we're going to get into the security news in just a second, but want to thank our sponsor, Netflix. Uh, they allow you to stream movies and TV shows right to your laptop, to your tablet, to your phone, uh, to your television. If you've got an Xbox 360, a PS3, Nintendo Wii, you can get Netflix apps and put those shows right up there on your television. Stream unlimited amounts of movies every month uh, for one low price. And you're also able to watch them on your TV and all that stuff, too. It's all part of the package. You don't have to pay extra for every single device. You get it all. You don't have to pay per show that you're watching. It's all part of the program. Uh, And they're constantly changing the lineup, so you get to see fresh movies, fresh TV shows being added all the time. Uh, And you get to check it out for free. 
Netflix.com slash twit is the place to get 30 days free of Netflix to give it a try. They just add Mad Men. Uh, they've got Futurama. There's great kids programming on there. So, if, you know, likely you may already be a Netflix subscriber. You may have already tried Netflix. Uh, so don't feel bad about passing out that URL to folks, netflix.com slash twit, uh, and saying, hey, you know what? I can give you 30 days free on Netflix streaming if you want. Just give it a, give it a try. Helps us out. Helps them out. Nobody, nobody loses. So we appreciate Netflix's support of Security Now. Uh, let's get into the security news. Now, there is a, uh, we talked about this in the pre-show. There is a news go- going around from McAfee putting out a press release about something called Shadow Rat. We're not going to talk a lot about that, though, because it's just, it's the, as you put it, Steve, the news is, wow, hacking still happens. Yeah, I mean, I saw the news. I thought, okay, what is this? I, and I expected to see some big new deal. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is not a big new deal of any sort. McAfee's basically saying, oh, for the fa- for the past five years, there has been an organization, and they do believe it's, it's one group, that have penetrated a number of different companies and, and you know, entities of various sorts. It's like, uh, okay, and this is news how? And so, you know, we have talked about RAT before on, 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 the, pad, on the podcast, the, the remote access Trojan tool that is often used uh, that people get, you know, infected with. And in fact, there was some, it may have been that that was believed to be implicated in the now very famous RSA break-in, that that was the tech, that that, that was the tool that was used, you know, some unwitting support person opened a document and got themselves infected and that gave them a foothold into RSA's network. But, you know, it's like, okay, so, I've, you know, this has been going on for five years. I felt more like McAfee just sort of trying to generate some news for themselves. So I thought, well, it's just, you know, I didn't have it on my list. So we certainly have covered it in any event. Exactly. We've probably overcovered it. Uh, our next story, the- water is wet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, our next story right. uh, is about uh, a new anti-censorship system. It's really interesting. A number of people tweeted me about telex.cc, T-E-L-E-X dot C-C. And I don't know, maybe I'm getting jaded or something. I, I just thought, okay, you know, what now? I guess I'm, I'm not too interested generally in anti-censorship. It's, it's a little bit off the map. But when I saw what these guys had did had did what they what these guys did what they had done suddenly i got very interested so so here's the deal they talk about how tor which we've talked about the onion routing technology which in uh, securely encrypts hops from one onion router to the next in a way that no router in the chain is able to determine anything but where it needs to send the packet onto, and so it decrypts in a series of layers to really provide extremely good anonymity. That's but, why it's called the onion router, because of those layers. That's the metaphor there. Precisely. However, it, it, it provides that, but it does not, it does not hide it, the fact that you're using it. So it doesn't provide you anonymity in that sense. It, it only provides you... Um, security against eavesdropping. What? But okay. So here's the problem with censorship in general: is that, for example, to take China, um, if you're in Beijing, YouTube is blocked for you. 
So you're you're unable to access YouTube and any of a number of of different services that the government doesn't want you to have access to. So, of course, services like Tor, which are identifiable, are also blocked. So a group of very smart people who who I who I commend are um, presenting a paper at this month's 20th Usenext Security Symposium to describe the technology that they've come up with. And they talk about it as an instead of an end-to-end system, which is the way, for example, SSL works, where we're providing endpoint-to-endpoint encryption, they've designed something they call an end-to-middle proxy that has no IP address. Now, see, this, so, is, the, this is the interesting point, because uh, I thought the Onion Router was able to obfuscate your IP address because of all those layers, because of all those hops, it would be impossible to track you down. But this paper is saying, no, they're acknowledging you can find out that there is an IP address there. Is that right? Well, kind of. What You're right about what the Onion Router does. But the point is, you need to connect to an Onion Router node at your end in order to send the onion of encrypted layers into the onion router network. So a sensor can simply know the IP addresses of the of the available onion router nodes and block them from you. Uh, so it's not your IP address, but they, they can get you because they know you're communicating with the onion router. I got you. Precisely. So exactly. So so. You know, DNS can be used for blocking. You know, hard IP addresses can be used for blocking. So these guys said, okay, if we we want somebody within a censored environment to be able to communicate to to anyone outside of the censored environment with it with it being absolutely undetectable, and so that's what got my. Attention is like okay. Wait a minute. How you know what have they yeah, done? How do you, what how do you done, get rid of the IP address? That's crazy. How do you do that? What they've done is so clever that they 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 call it as I was saying end to middle proxying. So the idea is that ISPs, that is tra- traffic carriers outside of the controlled environment, are participating, and. Again, when I when I initially read their telex.cc sort of they have like a cartoony introduction to what this does, they talked about that they were going to encode headers in the traffic that would reroute the packets on their way out. And I and I thought immediately, well, okay, wait a minute. Headers that won't work because headers are inside of an SSL connection. So what they're saying is that within a, within a censored environment, there are there are services you cannot access, but there are still services you can access over SSL. For you know, because you'd have to be able to do that because all password handling, you know, you at least bring up a, a secure SSL connection when you're logging into a remote site with a password. So so. They're, they're not blocking all SSL, and they're not blocking all sites over SSL. They're just blocking the ones that they want to censor you from. So the idea is that you using this client, you, you get a client, 
you you download it, a friend gives it to you, they recognize access to the client may be restricted. So it may literally be back to sneaker net in order to, you know, for people to hand these the special client software around from person to person within this um, censored environment. You, you you use this client and it establishes a standard SSL connection to an a non-censored site. What the what this clever and it is really clever technology does is it monitors the establishment of the SSL connection. That is, um, and we've we've covered SSL extensively um, in the past on the podcast. One of the things that happens when you're bringing up the encrypted link between the two endpoints is that the the client generates a random number which it will be using for its session and the um and and we've also also often talked about the need for randomness in cryptography you need to be able to generate high quality unpredictable random numbers in order to in order to to create tokens which are only used once for encrypting during that session. What these guys realized is if you were to monitor the establishment of the SSL connection and the client was not using truly random numbers, that is, they were unpredictable, but they were they were deterministic. That is, somebody who had a, a matching software who was actually acting as a man in the middle. So this would be someone carrying traffic outside of that censored environment that was deliberately placed in a man in the middle position could watch the establishment of the SSL handshake, check the random number being provided by the client and see if it matches specific cryptographic criteria and if so recognize that this is actually a request for a redirection and so it's that not actually random anymore it's well it's random but, but we have we have it, you you could sort of think of it as there are so many more bits in that random token than we actually need i see that that there are ways of applying some constraints on it so that if somebody had like a if it's so so so, so if, if somebody had a a list of alternative destinations they could see whether the client was secretly trying to signal that that was where they wanted this traffic to go and so on the fly but, but at the same time, it's still random, it still provides security, and it still is a real SSL connection. It's just a way of um, almost stigmatically uh-huh. embedding additional information in an otherwise completely valid handshake. And what's so cool is it is undetectable by the sensors. They can't see that this is anything other than a standard SSL connection being established like like people are, you know, millions are doing, you know, constantly. 
Instead, somebody outside of that environment can detect that and redirect the packet to basically just change the destination IP on the packet and send it to where the user inside really wants it to go. And it works. It's just extremely cool. And, so. and there's no way for uh, the sensor to be able to tell it's got the extra information in it. They can't just also detect like, hey, there's there's something wonky the same way that the telex station detects it? Uh, apparently not. I didn't go into the paper in detail. I do provide a link here in our show notes for anyone who wants to. And it's it looks like there's uh, like source code and stuff available for it. They're not trying to keep it secret. So it's T-E-L-E-X dot C-C. Um, and from there, you can probably drill down and find their paper. I did. And I, I just perused it enough to get a, a gist of what they were doing. Um, but it looks like it's the real deal. Yeah. Now, I mean, it requires a lot, it, which is the downfall. It requires that that essentially all the traffic that is leaving a censored environment after it gets out of its censoring would pass through this, this um, telex or whatever they're going to end up calling it, mm-hmm. but this this anti-censorship system because it is a man-in-the-middle technology. So if a given individual's traffic happened to go out through a different path that is, you know, bounced through um, standard routers and non-anti-censor-enabled ISPs, then it would just it would go to its destination. They would get connected to, you know, where... Where they said they, where their packet obviously said they wanted to get connected to, which is not what they really want. So, so with this comes a, a tremendous implementation burden, which is that all you know to be reliable, all the traffic leaving China, for example, would need to have, um, you know, like like sweetheart ISPs who are all in on this who are running this technology, examining all of the SSL connections that are being established and doing the cryptographic work of seeing whether this is one of these tricky packets and if so, then doing redirection. So to me, the downside is it's more of a capability than a solution because mm-hmm. to, to get this thing to really work would require an awful lot of implementation side stuff. But it's a it's a certainly progress, and I, and I guess the sensor could block an entire ISP if there was a telex station on that and play a game of chicken and say, you know, you you get the telex stations off your network, or we're you know we're not going to allow, allow you back in. But that's that's sort of a scorched earth policy. Well, it is, and they 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 could also the other thing is if they're the assumption is that they that the sensor is allowing SSL non non proxied ssl traffic that is to say the sensor is allowing people within the environment to to have traffic go out that they cannot see into and i wonder about that yeah. because because one of one of the first things that a censored environment would do would be to a stat, would would be to require you if you want SSL connections to to install their certificate 
in your browser, in which case they're able to intercept and proxy your SSL, decrypt it, see what it is, and then re-encrypt it. Well, that decryption, re-encryption, and establishing a new SSL connection outbound would break this the fancy protocol that, that that this telex technology does so it would not that this technology would not survive having ssl essentially proxied by somebody who wanted to see what you were doing the way for example many corporations do that want to want to proxy for reasons of of providing antivirus and more robust filtering well that's the same thing that you know a sensor wants to do is robust filtering so anyway it's Extremely cool technology. A bunch of people brought it to my attention. So I wanted to say, yeah, I looked at it. That's how it works. It's not clear to me that it's practical, but definitely very clever. Well, and you need stuff like this uh, to be discovered and explored to yep. get to that practical technology that will do what this wants to do. Uh, this this is a, a step along the way for sure. Right. Let's uh, move on to something that is possibly considered less cool by many. Uh, huh. the, we've got a return of the undeletable cookie from Kiss uh, yeah. Yep. Another, again, lots of people brought it to my attention, wanted to understand what was going on. Um, it, th- there are, we, 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 we've, we've talked extensively, of course, because tracking is something that all of our listeners are concerned about and, and monitoring it and controlling it. Um, the first tracking we know was from just standard browser cookies, so-called third-party cookies that were being hosted by websites that that you then um, uh, attracted these cookies through um, uh, as a consequence of third-party resources being loaded by web pages. Then cookies, sometimes people call them. Well, yeah, well, well, an ever cookie is a little bit different than that. That that's a sort of a pseudo cookie that's used by um, sort of, and that's still more sort of theoretical. There actually is something called an ever cookie, which uses lots of characteristics about your client in order to lock on to you. Then Flash began used, but began being used um, as a as sort of an off-the-map, off-the-radar approach. So sites would host Flash. Flash, by default, is configured to allow local storage on the user's machine. And by, by, by scripting Flash, it was possible to, to resurrect cookies that had been previously deleted. So users became, you know, who were concerned about privacy began routinely not only blocking third-party cookies, but also just deleting all of their first-party cookies because they realized that would still make them known to sites that they revisited. And in some cases, for whatever reason, they chose to, you know, not to have that be possible. Flash was being used then to recreate cookies that had been deleted. And so that was considered to be a problem. Um, It's these UC Berkeley privacy researchers who stumbled um, just recently on this Kissmetrics service. They're the same guys that brought the Flash cookies to our awareness back in 2009. So they published a paper just last Friday... July, July 29th, which was picked up by Wired and sounded the alarm that there was a new technology in place that defeated all known anti-tracking technology. Um, it used 
HTML5 and something that they call e-tag responding. At least it's standards e compliant. <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, our, our our browsers are now are now up to HTML5 yeah. and support e-tags, and so unfortunately, they support this Kiss metrics. So, what is e-tag uh, responding? How does that work? Uh, well, okay, so um, the the way assets are managed through the web is we'd like to be able to have our browser cache things so that we're not having to constantly get them over and over and over. So, for example, if you're on Amazon, all of that, you know, the website's decoration is in images, which your browser needs to get once. But then as you go from Amazon to page to Amazon page, you even though the pages are different, all that window dressing is pretty much the same. So you'd like your browser to be able to just use what it already has in its cache. There are a number of ways of, uh, for a server to allow a browser to cache. Um, for example, there is, and, and this is normally done in, in headers that the user doesn't see, that are, that are so-called um, meta tags or, or meta information, which is a, a additional information. So, for example, there will be expiration dates on the information that the that the server says, essentially allowing the browser to know that it can, until a certain date and time, it can reuse this. Um, the browser is able to say, is able to to send a query to the server saying, if this object has not been modified since a certain date, then just let me know that. Otherwise, give me the update. So browsers are also able to like send back query, sort of conditional queries saying, this is what I've got that has this following date stamp on it. If you've got something newer, then I definitely want to know. Otherwise, just let me know that it's not been modified. And so servers spend a lot of time these days sending back uh, I think it's 301 not modified replies to browsers' conditional queries. Well, there are problems with intermediate caches, which can sometimes muck these things up. So the HTML standards folks said, you know, we need something a little more robust. Let's essentially come up with a hash for these objects so that the server... When it, when it sends a, an object to the client, it will also provide what's called an e-tag. E stands for entity. So it's an entity tag, which uniquely identifies this particular instance of any object with that name. So now the browser is able to say, I have an entity, I have an object at, with the following URL... And I essentially, I have its hash. Um, it asks the server to verify that the entity hasn't changed even by the same name. So the bad news is this is, it's supposed to be an opaque token, just a, blo a, a string of gibberish will be unique for a given instance of an object that is to say you know a hash if you change the object then and the the html spec doesn't say it has to be a hash it doesn't actually say it has to be anything it's just supposed to be a blob 
you know, an opaque token, which is unique to this object. So you, you, you could use, for example, a, a, good, a good CRC algorithm as long as you didn't have a problem with, with collisions of different objects having the same CRC, the same checksum. Then it, so it can be really anything. And it's not, it's not taken as a hash. It's just taken, t- taken as something opaque. Well, the guys at Kissmetrics, which was a, you know, at San Francisco-based you know, Silicon Valley style startup a few years ago, they said, we're going to, we're going to come up with something that's even stronger for tracking than anyone has done before. And that's what they, all these uh, companies are looking for is, is, is the most robust tracking that they can come up with. They want to n- not be deleted. They don't want to have their ads blocked. They want to get around all of that stuff. Yes. And, and so there's two aspects to this. There's what, you know, to use the term stovepiping, where you keep things within one within one stovepipe, there there's the notion of identifying people who come back to you, who who are your people coming back to you in the future. That's one aspect, and users may or may not may or may not want to be identified by the same site when they return. Often it's valuable because, for example, you don't have to then re-authenticate and re-log in. You're able, for example, with eBay, there's a checkbox, you know, keep me logged in for 24 hours. And, and so, it's, so there's a, a huge aspect of convenience for being identified both as you move around a site from one page to the next, but also if you return an hour later. Yeah, and, you, and Google you, does this on a vast basis where if you're logged in, they can, you can stay logged in for two weeks. And when you move from Google Docs to Google Plus to Gmail, you're, you're constantly authenticated. Right. Then the second more onerous and, and, and worrisome tracking is, of course, cross-site tracking. where, And this is the one that concerns most people where... Because sites use, for example, common advertisers like DoubleClick that, of course, is now a Google property, um, because sites use common third parties when a given individual goes to a different site that shares that third party that provides cross-site connectivity. And this is precisely the behavior that these UC Berkeley privacy researchers found and verified they found first of all this is not just for example hulu which was talked about in this article and and spotify there were a thousand of the top websites are all now using kiss metrics which is why hulu and spotify were so upset that they got they got, they got singled out <laughs> like, exactly hey, there's 998 others out there too yeah, and I mean very popular sites because this technology is so powerful. What the Berkeley guys found, and this was what sent a chill down their spine, is the exact same ID, a long crypto-looking unique tag, what existed on many different sites that were using Kissmetrics, meaning that Kissmetrics was not assigning random tracking tokens, but was synchronizing tokens across multiple sites, which meant that a given site could, who was using Kissmetrics could say to a different site using Kissmetrics, hey, here's the, the Kissmetrics token I have 
for such and such a user. Can you tell me anything about them? And oh, by the way, I'll share some information with you if you'll share some with me. So it really, it really increased the concern about um, intersite collusion, which has been a problem in the past. So um, the good news is this generated a, a big kerfuffle. Uh, Kissmetrics is now saying that they're that they've backed off from their technology and their own. And this is only in, in a few days, in a matter of five days. They've they've now posted an update on their site saying that they're just going to use cookies for persistence. What it looks like they were doing is they were using custom JavaScript. It was a file called i.js. And in this JavaScript, they would embed the unique token for the user and 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 only okay so not removing cookies not dealing with flash not not um doing anything that users could do other than emptying their entire browser cache is that's what it took in order to shake this kismetrics technology loose and that's because Because, they were using html5 and e-tag yes that's that's the place it's stored Yes, and what and what the privacy researchers at UC Berkeley realized was that this was the first time they had seen e tags being used in the wild for ID tracking, not just benignly for for cache tracking. They were embedding IDs in e tags that were being provided by Kismetrics. And so those things would live in your browser cache persistently, and then this i.javascript, this i.js file would would pull back the e tags and then regenerate information and allow you know much more pervasive pervasive tracking than we'd seen before. Um, I did want to let our users know we've talked about Ghostery as a very cool add-on, a cross-browser add-on. I've got it both in Firefox and Chrome, which notifies you of which sites are providing third-party tracking when when you visit pages and i noted that kiss kiss insights and kiss metrics are both appearing on various sites when, when i'm when i'm seeing my little ghostery pop-up so users can see where this is going on and you know my my takeaway from all this is that this is another example of state-of-the-art technology being used to track us and that ultimately that much as i love technology we all know i do it's going to be legislative um um a legislative solution that we end up i think generating and relying on it'll be when there's the force of law behind something as simple as the do not track header in our browsers which where sites are 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 required by law to ask for permission to track us rather than assuming by default that they're able to. Even that and won't because, get rid because, of all the instances, of course, but at least it wipes out a bunch of people like Hulu and Spotify who want to be law-abiding. Well, yes. And, and for example, it was when the use of flash cookies came to light in 2009 immediately a class action lawsuit was filed against the companies who were doing it and um at the time flash was ignoring the um the private browsing 
options in browsers. So the flash cookies were persisting into and out of private browser sessions. Adobe modified Flash in order to to um, to behave itself when when Flash cookies were enabled and and to like you know to um, to give users the the privacy that they were asking they were clearly explicitly asking for when they were using in private browsing technology. So so it's re- i believe it's the case that there there is enough concern and this is clearly a subject of enough abuse that it's going to be when browsers simply say i do not want to be tracked that that you know legitimate companies that are right now able to to track us without our knowledge are going to have to do so with our permission um or or risk the consequences which i think will be significant because clearly enough people are upset about this that uh, it really you know that 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 good companies have to abide and in the meantime kiss metrics you know we should reiterate have have said they've switched to cookies only ids but they Who's to say they couldn't switch back later without telling someone or some other company comes along and, and the same shenanigan? Well, or a different shenanigan. And that's why I think, I mean, if you just step back from this, the, the technology is is out of control. And so the, the, I, I really think the only solution is going to be simply m- making our preference not to be tracked known in a simple way and 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 then having watchdogs like these UC Berkeley guys and so many others checking to make sure that that companies are honoring it and just stomping on them with the force of law when when companies don't they're just I mean they're just we can't stay ahead of it technologically yeah it's a it's a constant race uh let's move on to an errata uh, around the blowfish bug um yeah uh, many 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 people uh, commented. Th- uh, we talked last week about a bug in uh, using Blowfish for hashing, and how some confusion with the signed or unsignedness of characters could cause a, a dramatic weakening in in the the, the hash that resulted. Um, many people commented that ASCII is a seven bit code, and so. So you'd always have the high bit off in ASCII code. So first of all, I want to acknowledge everyone who said that. You're absolutely right. However, the application for this code was not strictly ASCII input. So there there was an instance or, or are instances where this could still bite you. But even so, um, you know, people were saying, well, this isn't really as bad as we thought. Well, that wasn't the point of the podcast. The point of the podcast was to demonstrate an, an example where the programmer clearly made a mistake, which the compiler was obscuring and, and as a means of demonstrating how easy it is to make these kind of mistakes. So I want to absolutely acknowledge that if only 7-bit code was being used in this instance, then this particular bug would never manifest. But... It turns out that code with or, or input with high bits on is often used, but but mostly this was not meant as a, okay. Well, how bad is this problem in 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 the wild? But here's a, a such a cool textbook classic case of of how bugs like this um, do happen in 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 real life. 
Let's uh, let's go on to then uh, the portable sound blaster project that you announced uh, out on Google Plus, and you've got a Google group for it as well. What's going on with this? Well, um, I don't know, Tom, if you're aware of the most popular and arguably famous podcast security now podcast of all time, which was is called the Portable Dog Killer Podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, I have I have heard the tales. So. Um, that was podcast number 248, and immediately after the podcast was aired, people began writing to me asking for plans for their own version of this thing. And I, I will say again, because I'm, you know, 40 years after I made this thing, I made it when I was 16 and I'm 56 today, the name makes me just cringe. I'm very self-conscious about, you know, having ever called anything a portable dog killer, especially when... In fact, I really believe it probably saved the dog's life right. that I used this vi- the device to train because it's a you know, portable dog watch- trainer. Maybe it's not. It's yes. It, yes no dogs. Yes. No animals have been harmed with the use of your your uh, application. Correct. Correct. Some seagulls had their flight paths altered, but you know th- that didn't hurt them either. So, so anyway, a year later. Uh, or yes, it was it was May 2010, and you know as people discover it, I, I'm getting constant mail. What I what I have come to realize is this problem of of barking dogs is much worse than you know I ever really appreciated. Uh, now I created this to 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 train a dog not to leap at a fence and knock people off the sidewalk and scare them to death. Or near death. Um, so again, no humans killed. In yeah, exactly. Use of this application. Um, but there are people who are unable to, to sell their homes. I've I've heard stories of people who cannot sell their homes because of the dog next door. My own parents put up with a a dog that would bark all night for decades. You know, asking the owner to please, you know, take care of their dog or something, but. No, I don't know what's happening. You know, society's decaying. We have less sense of community now than we used to. I, I've heard stories about babies being awakened by dogs that, that, that people have no control over. Anyway, it was, it was finally a few months ago when I was enjoying or trying to enjoy an afternoon on a, on, on, a, on a friend's patio. We were, you know, doing some backyard barbecue grilling um, that this dog next door was just barking at nothing for hours and it really was disturbing mark explained that this this you know and he'd owned the house for a year at that point that this has been going on for a year and so i thought okay maybe it is time to revisit this issue to see you know to explore the possibility of of training aberrant canines uh to stop barking so I took a break from the project I'm nearly finished with. I've been working on a very exciting new crypto thing that I will be telling our listeners about shortly. Um, I took a break to to look at updating the technology, um, and I've I've got that underway. Parts are on order. I I I created a group on Google uh, called called the Portable Sound Blaster. And so that's what I'm calling this thing. Uh, there's also a problem I have out on, out on the patio at Starbucks early in the morning with, uh, for some reason, on some mornings, an, an amazing 
collection of crows descend on one tree and squawk for about an hour. And I've seen other people, other Starbucks patrons, screaming up at the at this tree, telling them to shut up. Are you sure? You know, are you sure they're not uh, ravens delivering messages from distant kingdoms? I'm not sure of that. Either way, that's they're very, annoying, is what you're saying. Very, but they are, certainly are annoying. So I'm I, I'm curious. I want to see how they will respond to something like what I created before, but updated four decades later using current technology. I don't know what the result will be. I also want to see about, I've got two friends, both named Mark, who are good friends, both with problems like this. I want to see if there is some solution and maybe offer, and I don't know yet because we don't know what the results will be, but maybe offer a solution to other people. So whatever it is that I do, I'm just going to make public. Um, and, and the idea is that this is a sound that the dogs hear and dissuades them from barking. Maybe I don't. I don't know what. I mean, maybe they'll bark louder. <laughs> In which case, not. it would be counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. So you know, but I, I, I'm going to create a a flexible device which is capable of of sending a beam of sound between 3,500 and 25 kilohertz. So. Through the audible range, the problem with birds is they're hearing that their their frequency response begins to drop off around nine eighty five hundred and nine thousand hertz, which is entirely audible to us. So anything that would would may convince the birds to leave the tree, we would be able to hear. It is not the case with dogs, whose of course hearing famously is technically supersonic. It's above the the range of human hearing. So. I don't know if they'll stop barking. I don't know if we could like, you know, make, like if they bark, we, 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 we reward them or punish them with a blast of sound and then stop. And like they learn that, oh, maybe barking isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I don't know. So there's lots of experiments to be had. I just wanted to get this thing started because I'm, I'll, I'll be working on the background. I'm going to immediately return to finish this crypto project that I'm very excited about. Um, which I'll be talking to all of our listeners about before long. But I'd also wanted to announce that this is underway. Um, many people have asked about my use of the term sound blaster, saying that, you know, portable sound blaster sounds like something, you know, from Creative Labs. Yeah, I'm going to take my audio card out and carry it around with me. Exactly. Now, so I thought I'd just take this opportunity to teach a little bit about trademarks. The problem with the problem with the with the trademark sound blaster is that it is extremely descriptive, which means it is a very weak trademark. So there is no trademark infringement if I have something that I call, whether it's a group on Google or a, a device, if I call it a portable sound blaster, that's what it is. It, it, it's descriptive and... It is not infringing anyone's trademark. The, and the and if, problem, you were, if you were making a sound card and trying to call it a sound blaster, you'd be in trouble because you, you would likely cause confusion. But this is a different kind of device, so you're not likely to cause that confusion. Exactly. And, and for example, w trademarks like Xerox or Kleenex, they're incredibly good and strong trademarks because they don't say anything about what they do they're not descriptive i mean kleenex uh, maybe sort of you know you maybe it's like a con con concatenation of clean and 
something tissue or I mean I don't know what Kleenex means. Probably just the clean if, part. If, but, if they were tissues for uh, daubing the neck area, then maybe maybe <laughs> they would be more descriptive. But they're right. not correct. But they are there, or or like Exxon, fantastic trademark. I mean, there's it, it, it is owned. Those things are owned by those companies. But something like Sound Blaster, that that was never a good trademark for Creative Labs to have because it it is too descriptive. So for me to have something called a portable Sound Blaster, I can call it that if I want to. As you said, it will not confuse people because it's not a sound card. But it's also, I'm just describing what this thing is. It is not a violation of anyone's trademark. Although so we'll see, we'll see that put to the test with the Apple case uh, suing Amazon to stop them using the term App Store. That's Amazon's yes. defenses. That's descriptive. Apple's defense is no application store would be descriptive, but App Store is not. So that's a, it's right. an interesting application of that test. There are there are gray no areas. Yeah. <laughs> so you have you been you've been getting into falling skies. Well, okay, so here's what prompted that. Uh, yes, first of all, I've been watching it, and I like it. I got sucked uh, in, too. I didn't think I was going to like it. I totally like it. Well, yes. And so it is the fact that there's a Falling Skies marathon on TNT Sunday that caused me to bring it to our listeners' attention. You know, if it's it's been a short season. It's, what, maybe 10 weeks? If, if, so TNT is, uh, you know, Turner Network... Television, I guess, is what yep. TNT stands for. Unless it's tech um, news today. So <laughs> not a very um, you got to watch out for that trademark thing again. There you go. The So the TNT cable channel uh, has been airing a sci-fi series called Falling Skies. It stars, for those of you who don't know, it stars Noah Wiley, who came to everyone's attention for, you know, for his never-ending stint on the show ER, you know, NBC's, I think, what is it, rent 10 or more years? More, I think, yeah. Um, uh, the, okay, a good friend of mine, Mark Thompson of Analog X, hates the show. He only saw the first two episodes, and it just, ma- it just made him gag. But we've got very different taste, Mark and I. Um, it is true that when it, tr- when, it, when it tries to do sort of soap opera-y things, mm-hmm. it stumbles, because the actors are not fantastic. But... It's good science fiction. So um, I I did a little poking around, and uh, there is a Falling Skies page on Wikipedia for anyone who's curious. Um, Tim Goodman of The Hollywood Reporter, reviewing it, wrote, The entertainment value and suspense of Falling Skies is paced just right. You get the sense that we'll get those answers eventually, and yet you want to devour the next episode immediately. Thomas Connor of the Chicago Sun-Times called it, a trustworthy family drama, but with aliens. He continued, It's Jericho meets V, with the good from both and the bad discarded. He says, It'll raise the summer TV bar significantly. T- Ken Tucker from Entertainment Weekly gave the series a B plus and wrote, A similar, gradually developed, uh, but, device, the, but de- decisive conviction makes Falling Skies an engaging, if derivative, chunk of dystopian sci-fi. Mm-hmm. He concluded, Falling Skies rises above any one performance. It's the spectacle of humans versus aliens that draws you in. And finally, the Boston Herald, Mark A. Uh, Perigard, gave the series a B-grade, writing, Don't look now, but Falling Skies could be a summer obsession. Well, okay, so I'm not giving this 
you know, the Gibson sci-fi five-star award. It, it doesn't merit that. It's not as good as, you know, as reading, you know, Demon and, and Freedom TM or any of the, uh, you know, Peter F. Hamilton no, no, stuff. No, I, I agree. And by the way, that's the 10th episode airing this Sunday. Okay. So it was very short. Uh, it was last week that they said only two remaining. I went, I went what? Oh, shoot. Because, I mean, I'm enjoying it. It's. I think it got better, and it. We're lear- It's. There's enough good sci-fi in there. You know, we're learning things about the, these aliens that have attacked the Earth and occupied, uh, and are occupying the Earth. And you know. So anyway, the who knows if it'll get renewed. That will be the test. Yeah. You know, is it going to get renewed for a larger? And larger chunk of time, we've seen really good sci-fi like Firefly that didn't even have the episodes that have been made all aired. So you know, networks don't always do smart things. Um, I think it was worth watching. So because the entire first nine episodes will be re-aired all day long, culminating in a two-hour season finale next Sunday. I did want to bring it to our listeners' attention. It's not too late. If, the, if this sounds interesting, you know, start your TiVos and suck in the whole series and see what you think. Uh, you know, if you subscribe to a, a box that's got TNT on it anyway, it's free. And uh, I, I think it's, worth, it's been worth watching. I hope, I hope it gets a second season. Magician says it got renewed. Uh, I looked oh, it up he- and there's a, there's a quote from Michael Wright of, tech, of uh, TNT. Uh, the network saying that it, it in fact will be renewed for a second season so yay i just yeah. i just the only the only criticism i have uh, i i've gotten sucked in too is that i wonder why the aliens don't have aerial surveillance why they can't just look down and and see all the humans like it, well, it seems okay, a little and- easy for them to hide yes and and there uh, mark thompson's criticism is that he says you know you're required to suspend too much disbelief on the other hand, he watches fantasy anime, so you know it's like, okay, Mark, I'm you know I can't watch that stuff. So I can suspend that much disbelief; it doesn't ruin it for me. But I, I, that, yeah. that was something that crossed my mind. Yeah. Uh, do, do, so we uh, we've got a note from Jeremy Webb. We do. Um, uh, actually, it was really well timed. It was uh, uh, this morning. And uh, he sent an email to uh, my sales folks who forwarded it to me. He said, another satisfied SpinRack customer. And this one's sort of interesting. He said, Dear Steve, I've always been my parents' tech support guy. When I joined the U.S. Air Force, they stationed me pretty far away from home. Thankfully, I've always been able to VNC into their computers and get things straightened out for them. This week, I was presented with a rather unique challenge. My mother called to tell me that their computer was throwing a bunch of disk errors in Windows. Fixing this problem was particularly difficult for two reasons. First, VNC wouldn't help them if their hard disk crashed suddenly. Second, I'm currently deployed to Afghanistan. Where getting a good enough connection to VNC into their computer can be difficult. I knew that Spinrite might be able to fix the disk errors... But I would be. But would I be able to walk my parents, who aren't the most tech-savvy people, through it over the phone? Believe it or not, I was able to get a good enough connection to VNC into their computer and make for them a Spinrite bootable image. I was able to instruct my computer over the phone how to boot into Spinrite and start the repair process. 
She called me the next day and told me that Spinrod had fixed 12 errors and that their computer was now back to normal. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate your product. It really saved the day, Jeremy. Well, so, that, that's a bad, that's a that's a feat. That's a <laughs> from there, yeah, that's that's great. All right, uh, we'll get into the Q and A. Our uh, our security now one hundred twenty third Q and A in just a second. Those of you uh, on the live stream who may be wondering, or if you just fast forwarded to the middle, Leo Laporte on jury duty. So uh, I'm Tom Merritt filling in for him, and want to thank Carbonite who is sponsoring security now right now i use them it's in fact it's backing me up right now and i didn't have to think about it in fact i wouldn't have known it it wouldn't it doesn't slow my computer down i went in and checked just to see what was going on and it's yeah it's it's updating a few files that have changed since the last backup quietly in the background gives me an option to to say you know what don't use up a lot of bandwidth if i'm if i'm online and i'm doing a bunch of streaming kind of pause yourself until the bandwidth comes back very configurable very quiet and very good at giving you peace of mind because i recommend to everyone you should have a local backup and you should have a remote backup the local backup can be anything it can be a network attached storage drive uh, it can be a hard drive that you plug in by usb that you have to remember but remote backup i recommend carbonite because they do everything you want in the background for very affordable unlimited backup for your pc or mac is only 59 dollars a year that's only 16 cents a day most other backup solutions do not give you that generous of terms it's safe your files are encrypted before they leave your computer you got maximum security uh it's automatic and the the nice side benefit is not only can you restore your files with just a few clicks but you can access them when you're somewhere else you can log into your carbonite account and see all the files that they have stored for you uh you can even see them on your phone so so check them out today uh try it for free don't need to use a credit card or anything just go to carbonite.com enter the offer code security now in the video version you see it right there at the bottom of the screen Uh, and if you decide to buy the service after your free trial you'll get two months free with that same offer code uh security now so be sure to sign up for the free trial from the homepage and get your two months free uh, you don't like I said, no credit card required. Uh, and go to carbonite.com and use that offer code if you decide to buy their service. I think you'll want to. Uh, it's it's so affordable and so good at just keeping everything backed up for you. I've been using them for years, and I really appreciate their support of Twit and Security Now. Let's move on to our listener feedback. The Password insecure one two three episode. <laughs> Don't use the number of this listener feedback as your password. Do not. Oh, there, there's one thing though. I forgot to mention. Anyone who wants to get to uh, at any time in the future, uh, get to that Google group for the portable sound blaster. I added a link to it in GRC's main menu. So at grc.com, the last menu item says other. And that's just sort of my random catch-all. So under other, you will see Portable Sound Blaster, and that'll take you to the Google group. So for anyone who wants to know how to find it easily. There's one question answered before you even asked it. (laughs) I know how to find it. Uh, uh, So let's let's start off with Steve. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. You're Steve. He's writing to you. His name is Alon. Uh, He's part of the social media team at GoDaddy.com in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he wrote in to mention what he believed may have been a factual error in Security Now 308. Uh, 
where we discussed uh, choosing to drop GoData.com as your provider of SSL certificates. Obviously, he wishes that weren't the case, but he understands you have to have the freedom to choose the provider that best fits you. He's referring to the pricing mentioned for our SSL certs. He says, during the show, it was stated that our certs cost thousands of dollars. I wanted to clarify that. Not only do GoDaddy.com EV certs not cost thousands of dollars, I believe they're actually the least expensive EV certs on the market today. A single extended validation certificate or premium SSL currently costs only $99.99, less if purchased in multiple years. And furthermore, this pricing isn't new. It's been this way for some time, and at no time has this type of cert cost $2,000 as suggested on the show. So yeah, he goes on. He says, I fully respect your decision to publicly applaud the services you love. But uh, he, he wanted to point out that pricing difference. Well, I did respond to him because he got a bunch of his facts wrong. Um, uh, he assumed that I was currently using his certs and that it was GoDaddy I was leaving uh, and intending to go over to DigiCert. It, it is VeriSign that I have often... Const- and almost constantly talked about as having amazingly expensive certs and that uh, that I intend to go over to, to DigiCert because thanks to um, uh, the certificate patrol add-on on Firefox, I saw that Facebook was using DigiCert and a number of other very high-profile sites. So my feeling was if they can, I can too. So that gave me the courage to leave VeriSign where I have been from the beginning just because, you know, VeriSign has, was like one of the very early founders of all of this technology. Um, however, I did want to remind our listeners that neither Leo nor I will ever use GoDaddy because my problem with GoDaddy is they... They attempted to charge my credit card for an expired cert without my permission. They asked me several times in email. There was no way for me to say no. There was no way for me to tell them I did not want to have my certificate renewed. And then they sent me a note that my credit card had failed uh, their attempt to charge it. The good news was, through some miracle, I had used a PayPal one-time use credit mm -hmm. card number during the time that PayPal offered that service. And so GoDaddy was unable to to zap me again on that card. But when I realized they had tried with no auth auth authorization for me, I told Leo and we both swore them off. So, you know, they may be cheap, but, um, you know, I'm, they're just off my radar. I'm going to be switching to DigiCert here toward the end of the year. So the, confusion, the first of my certificates. The price you were talking about was VeriSign's price. But the yes. issue was not price-related with GoDaddy. Correct. I'm, I wasn't leaving GoDaddy. I have left Go GoDaddy, uh, and I will be leaving VeriSign to go over to, Digi to DigiCert. All right. Question number two from Tom Zaruka in metropolitan Detroit, Michigan. Uh, wonders about disabling tracking on tablets. He says, on an iPad 2 or Android tablet, how do I stop third-party cookies or tracking sites or the other stuff if I can't install Ghostery, NoScript, Cookie Monster, or the rest, which you can't on those browsers? Is there a host file that I can point the tracking sites to 127 or something else. Well, I can't speak to Android. Maybe you can, Tom. I, I do know that on the iPad, under the settings, the main settings app, uh, for the default browser, which is Safari, you can tell it that you only want to accept cookies from sites you visit, meaning not third-party cookies. 
I sort of think that's the default, if I remember. I, my, I checked, and mine is set that way. Only allow from sites I visit. But I think maybe Apple is unique in this industry for being for, for setting all their browsers that way by default. Which, in fact, I'm sure of that because I've looked at at cookie. Uh, third-party cookie stats and Safari stats are way down, almost at zero compared to to every other browser. So, so that's one of the nice things that Apple has always been doing for us is blocking that. The problem is you're on a on a very restricted platform where we just don't have things like the host's file or the ability to intercept DNS and and redirect things. And for one thing, we also don't have Flash, so we don't have to worry about Flash cookies over on iPad 2. But, Tom, are you an Android person? Uh, no, I'm not, uh, but my wife is. Uh, <laughs> and, and I know uh, <laughs> some of my best friends are Android users. Uh, if you push the menu button on your phone uh, and then you get more options, you go to the more options, you can select a settings function. And in the settings function, there's an accept cookies option uh, that you can uncheck and then it will not accept cookies anymore. So the, and that's so in the default some, browser anyway. Right. And, and I've just, I was going to say also, I also looked in, in, in wondering whether, for example, iTunes offered a privacy-enhanced browser. I know, for example, that the LastPass folks have an iPad browser that, that binds the LastPass functionality in to make it easier to, to log in. You don't need, need to use scriptlets and, and, and things, which you norm, otherwise normally have to use in Safari. Um, and I couldn't find anything. But I would imagine at some point maybe someone will do a privacy-enhanced browser that offers explicit, you know, do not track me um, additions, which would be very nice. And MXX in the uh, chat room points out that both iPad and Android have an ETC hosts file. Uh, so that that makes sense that you know if you can get in there and edit that, uh, you you might be able to do something there. So I I would bet that um, Android then you do have you know because you do have a, a much more open and and less controlled environment than on the iPad. Right. You could you could uh, go in and do that. Yeah. If you jailbreak your iPad, you'd be able to get at that host file most likely. If there is one, I mean that we don't know that there is one. There's a there's a direct yeah there's a directory. I don't know if there's a file. That's a good point. Uh, Brian Lawson in Lebanon, Indiana, wonders about Pi and online backup. He says, I've been wondering something about the combination of Pi and online backup services like Carbonite. I have a one terabyte drive and have created a 500 gigabyte TrueCrypt file on that drive for the data I want to keep under tight lockdown. Uh, I created a TrueCrypt encrypted file instead of a partition because services like Carbonite will back up a whole internal drive. But if it were segmented into partitions, I believe I could only pick one or the other drive letter. This way, I can point it at the whole drive and back up both the encrypted and non-encrypted data because it is on the same drive and drive letter. Now, since Carbonite works on differential backups after the initial run, would it have to re-upload the entire 500 gigabyte TrueCrypt file every time it changes? I know you can do things in TrueCrypt like disable the timestamp update, but the contents of the file will change with each update, and therefore the pseudo-random noise that is the file on the drive will look different to Carbonite. It will recognize it as a file that has been updated and grab the new version. I think I know the answer to the question, and I'm not sure I like it, but I thought I'd check with the experts, uh, with the experts before dropping dollars on this approach. Okay, so he did a good, clever thing. He created a, a big file, and he, so he's hosting a TrueCrypt container inside that file, which is on his drive. Um, Carbonite is smart in the same way that 
um, I'm trying to think of the other service. I think it was Dropbox. We were just talking about where it will take a large file and segment it in much smaller pieces on the order of like 16 megs and 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 generate hashes for individual pieces. They do this to save themselves bandwidth and to address exactly this concern, which is if you had if you had a huge file backed up, but only part of it were to change, Carbonite would only want to zero in on that part that changed and and save themselves, you know, all of the bandwidth uh, and you all the bandwidth of of re-uploading the entire thing. The way TrueCrypt functions, it is encrypting blocks that are sector size and nothing larger. So even though the whole TrueCrypt file, which is containing a, an entire drive, looks like pseudo-random noise, changes that are local within the file system will be reflected in local pseudo-random noise changes in the file. So so it's it the good news is Brian it's exactly what you want. You you will only see the same kind of uploads to reflect changes in the overall TrueCrypt file um that you would see um being made in the directory system. So there'll be, you know, some changes in in the in the metadata that manage the files and then the files themselves that come and go, but once you get that big 500 gig blob up once, then only little changes to it will have to be updated. So uh, that, that's a really great solution. And and I should point out, uh, and a bunch of people in the chat room are saying this too, uh, You all your internal drives can be backed up. So if you wanted to do an entire encrypted drive, it could still be backed up separately from other internal drives, even if you partition. I, I've done that before with Carbonite. Um, do you know whether Carbonite's view of the drive is pre-TrueCrypt or post-TrueCrypt? Oh, that, now that is a good question. I don't know. I, I, when I say I've done it before, I've backed up multiple internal drive partitions. I have not had them encrypted at the time when I did that. Right. That, my guess is my guess is that TrueCrypt would have the same view of the drive that the, the OS does. Yeah. No, that makes yeah. sense. So what he's doing is is a clever way to make sure that it stays encrypted. Yep. All right. Uh, Joel Davis in Albuquerque, the ABQ, New Mexico, has some info on NTP. He says, I just finished listening to Security Now 308, and I wanted to give you updated information on NTP and Internet time in general. I work for an electric utility, and we use NTP to sync clocks with extreme accuracy to do fault location on transmission lines. We're able to get around 10 uh, U.S. sync as compared to GPS clocks out of NTP. We are currently in the process of upgrading to IEEE 1588 as a protocol, which will do about one accuracy over packet switch networks. Uh, what what is that U.S.? What is that? Microseconds. That's microseconds. Oh, that's, he's using the letter U, but he means, okay, now I get it. Yep. We'll do about yep. one microsecond accuracy over packet switch networks. Also, I wanted to give you some better information on the NERC decision about power system frequency. This is a non-issue. In the mid-90s, NERC switched from an IFE, an integral frequency error, to an AFE, absolute frequency error standard. This means that instead of having to bring the integral of daily frequency error to zero for the last 15 years or so, utilities have only had 
had to cross nominal frequency once an hour. Now NERC is removing that requirement. It is still in the interest of the utility to maintain frequency close to nominal, and the regional entities, uh, WECC and ERCOT and the others, still have frequency deviation standards for their individual areas. Sorry so long, but I hope it helps, Joel. So just to remind our listeners, we talked back on episode 308 about the report that uh, power generating uh, entities around the U.S. were going to be allowed to let their frequencies wander and drift more than had been the case historically. And you know, Leo and I hailing back from the, the <laughs> well, the, the 50s and 60s remembered that, that original clocks depended upon the exact power line frequency they actually were essentially counting cycles um electromechanically with their own motors synchronized to the 60 hertz power and the idea was that during times of extreme power load the frequency of our ac line would tend to droop a little bit it would drop below 60 as the generators in the in the power plants, whether it be you know coal fired or or hydro- hydroelectric, they were put under greater load, and the actual g- spinning generators slowed down that were generating the AC waveform. And then the idea was then at night the engineers would have been counting cycles all day, and they would run fast in order to to make up for the fact that they were literally cycles behind due to the load during the, the peak power delivery of the day. And so what he's saying is that actually they, you know, the world has been cut loose since the 90s, that, um, that, they, that they're being further cut loose. Um, and, but but that, the, the presumption is but by this point, we're no longer in a cycle counting mode, that our clocks have you know, built-in crystals that, are, that, are, that they're depending upon for accuracy. And so the absolute number of cycles we've had of, of AC just isn't that big a deal any longer. Question number five. I'm glad to know. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you, Joel. Uh, Question number five comes from Gear in Norway about last week's blowfish bug again. He says, uh, browsing the web for more info on this blowfish bug you talked about in last week's Security Now episode, I came across this page at schneier.com slash blowfish-bug.txt. It includes an email from 1996, which seems to Mm. point out exactly the same bug already known back then. It even suggests both solutions you described, either casting the variable type or just declaring it as an unsigned int thought you'd like to know so sure enough i went to this page i don't know when bruce put this up um on his site but it but 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 it's schneider.com slash blowfish hyphen bug dot text and it shows a clear you know uh, i don't know if it's email or news group posting it's something that's got all kinds of time and date stamp headers all over it where there is a discussion and showing the code doing exactly this wrong thing back then. So it was known to people, and somehow it just never got fixed. History repeats itself. Yeah, boy. Uh, Joe in Pequot Lakes, Minnesota says in episode 299 and 301 of Security Now, as well as a Q&A episode, you alluded to sources of random numbers. While there are USB, PCI, and PCIe cards that can be purchased to allow your computer to generate true random numbers, there are some sites on the internet where you can request truly random data sequences generated for some, from some really creative sources. And he lists random.org, which I've actually used before, uh, generated from atmospheric 
traffic noise. And formilab.ch slash hotbits generated from radioactive decay of cesium-137. These sources can be queried via SSL over the internet for bits of pure random data for programs or via a browser. Silicon Graphics once provided random numbers via Lavarand, taking pictures of patterns produced by a lava lamp. Just some fun sources of randomness. So I just thought that was cool. I wanted to share those sources with our listeners. Um, Using contemporary browser technology, um, you know, uh, uh, Ajax-style queries, it's possible for script in a browser to establish a connection to any of these sites and get some randomness for its own use. I used to, uh, we we would do a drawing on a show I did for a prize, and I used to use random.org, because what I liked about it is you can put in a parameter. You can say, you know, give me a number between this and that, and it will give you a random number. It'll give you whole integers and everything, like you said. It's really good. Christopher Hopper in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, uh, has an annoying bank. He says, I'm a recent subscriber to Security Now, and so have been made aware of your recent revelations on password security, entropy, and the best way to construct a password that is hard to guess using brute force password cracking techniques. Thanks for thinking on these matters and sharing your own epiphany with us. I, I liked that episode, too, where Steve came up with his uh, his new password advice. I've been, I've been implementing that. Uh, get, getting back to the email, he says, I've taken your advice proffered on the Password Haystacks page to improve my already fairly strong master password and make it even stronger. I'm already a last pass user so my master password is very important it must be strong and easy to remember to achieve this i've applied elite method of spelling to an easy to remember code to make it stronger i'm now padding it out another four spaces using a special character i am concerned though with my banks i have two online banking accounts with two separate banks and in both cases i am not allowed to use special characters in my password one of the banks has a character limit of six to eight characters which is just lunacy i don't see a reason for it and i know thanks to your podcast with Leo, just what it might mean on the back end. I'm a web application developer myself, so I'm aware of how passwords are stored in back-end databases using salted hashes. I don't see why, if they're doing it right, they need to restrict either the type of characters or the number. Is there a security article from a trusted known source written in plain, easy-to-understand language that I can point the banks to to explain to them why they shouldn't put restrictions on password length or composition? Okay, so I'm just first to answer Christopher's question. I'm unaware of somewhere I could point him to, but I thought that I would put it out there for our listeners. Maybe someone knows of something clear and clean and and simple that I mean, obviously I could write something, but you know, that's not my job. Uh, maybe something exists. The problem is that I'm not convinced banks care. Um, certainly they're getting just complaints from their customers and, and in answering the question of why banks do this, the only only thing we've been able to come up with is that it's purely from a customer service standpoint. They want to, they, they want to provide a password that they're able to read over the phone or, or somehow communicate with. And customers are entirely capable of generating passwords that are just gibberish that no one, you know, you know, no bank personnel could handle. Certainly we have we know we have all the technology required to to easily handle really strong authentication. Um, it just it's difficult to understand 
why banks are doing it other than inertia. I, I imagine that 10 years from now this won't be a problem, but it certainly is now. I don't know whether sending a note to a bank would have any effect on them. I, I sadly think it probably would not. You're absolutely right about that customer service. I agree. I think it's because they don't want to deal with people who can't remember their password, so they keep them short. Yep. Because the other thing they do, which annoys me, is even if they do allow long passwords with case sensitive and 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 special characters they then say and you have to uh, have a security recovery question and that security recovery question has to be in plain english so you've just undermined the entire password at that point drives me exactly yep all right gary w in detroit michigan mentioned that steve didn't get a chance to explain the red division error in spin right he was just listening to the last podcast and you guys switched into the main topic before you had a chance to explain the why portion of the spin rights testimonial question of why it displayed the red division error one time but succeeded the next time what's the answer to that um okay the what what's going on is that Spinrite is still using some functions of the BIOS. And Spinrite is probably one of the few uh, utilities around which is still robustly exercising the BIOS. Most operating systems now use the BIOS just enough to get themselves loaded, you know, reading a simple range of sectors into RAM, and then they, as soon as they can, they switch into protected mode. The BIOS is real mode um, on, on, on the Intel architecture, not protected mode. It won't work in protected mode, but all operating systems run in so-called protected mode where they get advantage uh, and of all the extra features the chip has to offer. So they're in a hurry to get into that mode in order to finish booting themselves. What happens is that as a consequence, over time, BIOSes are beginning to be a little buggy. You know, we all know that, that if code is not being checked and is not being exercised, it has a tendency not to be correct. And so in some edge cases, Spinrite will, while it's doing data recovery, will cause the drive to respond in a way that upsets the BIOS, which is essentially an intermediary between Spinrite and the drive, and so that, that, you know, we look at those division errors and we see that it's in the BIOS, so there's nothing we can do about it. The good news is Spinrite can, as did happen in the case of last week's testimonial, Spinrite can recover the, the sector anyway. The problem tends not to persist. And in this case, you know, in, in the case that we uh, shared last week, the user ran Spinrite again and didn't have the problem recur. So it is, it is a, an interaction between the BIOS and a drive which is doing something that is upsetting the BIOS and my the, the top of my list for for what I will do when I next move Spinrite forward is to disconnect it completely from the BIOS. I will beca- it will become more like an operating system that just gets itself going and then no longer uses the BIOS for anything once it's running. So that's uh that that problem which isn't a big problem for our users, it will be going, it'll become a zero problem for everybody. The BIOS is a cruel and fickle mistress. It's good to to get away. And it's it's lonely. No one one really uses it anymore. Pete Costello in Cheesequake, New Jersey, which apparently means Upland or Upland Village in the the local uh, Native American language. I I had to look it up. (laughs) 
because <laughs> to find out why something would be called cheesequake might be pronounced like chessa cake or something anyway he has extensive experience with compiler evolution and signness he writes your anatomy of a security mistake brought back nervous ticks from my days compiling embedded systems code for many large firmware based telephony telephony systems I think there's a possible explanation for how such bugs appear in old code changes in compiler behavior. That is, compilers change. I would run my own compiler test whenever the compiler vendor or open source would release a new version. The test consisted of if statements with unsigned versus signed comparisons of every permutation of C-type character and unsigned care, short, int, long, etc. What I had found was compilers were not identical even between revisions. The if path would take very the path taken would vary between many compiler versions, the fix being to explicitly cast as unsigned wherever there was a test. Consequently, it is possible to test the source with one compiler fine, but if compiled later with a different compiler, the behavior would be different. Perhaps that explains how old code can suddenly be found behaving unexpectedly. And of course, this is a huge concern for security-related code where the cost of a mistake can be much greater than the program not working as designed. The confusion started during the formation of the ANSI C standard definition of the language. Early C compilers from Bell Labs preserved the sign, while Borland and the ANSI committee thought that was not intuitive, wanting to sell C compilers to the masses and chose to preserve the value. The result was two incompatible compiler types in the programming environs, yielding two different path-taking results. The ANSI committee even created several compilers options, allowing a transition to the new C compiler behavior for those customers with existing code bases, brackets, sigh. <sighs> but even into the 1990s, I still found compilers to exhibit different behaviors. My company went to lengths of buying me the Plumhall C compiler validation suite to ensure that the large code base we burned into the hardware was not going to be replaced because of variations caused by a compiler upgrade. I'm thinking this can explain how code can be developed and even tested, but later with a different compiler exhibit buggy behavior. I thought that was great news. I, you know, being an assembly coder myself, I haven't been plagued by these problems. But a number of listeners, and I wanted to acknowledge the, the others who sent similar notes, uh, basically said very much the same thing. This signed versus unsigned comparisons apparently has been a bane of C programmers' lives for decades. And uh, I loved Pete explaining a little bit of the history of how we got into this trouble that, you know, Borland and the ANSI committee thought, well, rather than preserving the sign, we're going to preserve the value, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, is just nutty. It's like, well, okay, Uh, gosh, I'm sure they had their reasons. The imp- the implications for security, you know, we we covered it in detail last week. So many subtle errors can be um, can be caused by that that kind of boundary condition. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Question number ten comes from Ken Girlando in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, writing about Zero Day, Demon, and Freedom TM. I've been listening since day one, he writes, and I've been happily using SpinWrite for many years. Having just read all these books you recommended and loved them, it seems like the focus should be preventing rootkits and changes to the BIOS. Short of that, we should have an easy way to install a clean OS. If, for example, in Zero Day, they had been able to reload the OS in total, as is done with the iPhone... They could have been back up quickly. I'm sure it is more complex than that. And, of course, reloading the OS would have to be done from an external safe OS. But what is stopping us from doing this now? I would say two things. 
First of all, the size and complexity of the OS. I mean, I'm sitting here in front of an installation of Windows XP. I would love nothing more than to somehow easily flush it out and start over. But, you know, as, as all Windows users know, the OS and our apps get so inextricably entwined that you just you have to quit the entire system and start over. It's just not possible to 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 I mean or, or, well okay I have a friend who was crazy and he tried to maintain applicationness separately from the OS but he spent more time doing that than he did getting work done and the second thing is that that the original iPhone didn't have these problems cuz it was completely closed and had no apps you know you, we'll all remember that the, the first iPhone, this whole app store thing and user-provided apps, that came afterwards. It arguably wasn't part of Apple's original plan. This amazing mother load that they've stumbled into and, you know, creating the, the app store wasn't part of their original idea, which is why it took them so long to come up with, you know, application programming kits for people who wanted to add apps to phones. My point is that... Any closed platform can be vastly more secure than any open platform. And the more open it is to the degree that it's incremental, for example, the first iPhone had zero openness. Now the iPhone has has relatively good openness. But, for example, the Android platform is wildly open and so, you, and so we see exactly a correlation between security problems and openness that track. So, unfortunately, no one is willing to have a closed platform. They're not willing to trade that for security. Everyone says, oh, we wish we had security. But then, then, then someone says, okay, but what if you can't run your app on it? Oh, well, then I don't want it at all. Yeah, there's a mobile security firm called Lookout that says Android users are two and a half times more likely to encounter malware than six months ago. Uh, isn't the argument that open can be more secure is that people can find the bugs faster and squash them, not that it's inherently more secure? Yeah, well, the, the, um, the idea, of course, the, the idea of openness is that you'll have you'll have many more eyes on it, that that. In a closed environment, only the authors know what they're doing, and they're inherently biased toward toward wanting to believe that it's correct. Or in some cases, I mean, we've seen evidence of known problems going unfixed because the, the, the those people just don't care. Right. Or you might say they don't have the right priorities or the right time. But in an open environment, you'll always have somebody, somebody who says, wait a minute, I've got of a free night i'll fix this right now yeah. and then mer- you know, merge the fix into the into the rest of the code stream and 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 we should point out in the in the books demon and freedom tm the demon would have corrupted your os already you wouldn't yeah you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have had a secure version of it most likely exactly finally question number 11 Quentin Roberts in St. John's, Newfoundland sends a message from Matthew Sobel. Uh, thank you, Steve, for recommending Demon and Freedom TM. I just finished reading Freedom TM, and it was amazing. Do you have any other books similar to this series? I'd love to read more like it, as my mind is just blown by all the possibilities and how technically accurate it all is. I've been a longtime listener of Security Now, and I've been listening to older episodes as I am working, and it has really refreshed some old material I've forgotten over the years. I enjoy listening every week. Keep up the great work got any other book recommendations for quentin here well okay i 
put this question in assuming that you would be Leo. Ah. Uh, because as our listeners know, when I when I discovered Demon and Freedom TN, Leo was like, well, duh. <laughs> well, I'm the one who told him about Demon. I was really late to the party, apparently, and it was zero. It was after I finished reading Zero Day, and people were tweeting me saying, "Steve, if you liked Zero Day by Mark Rusinovich, you're going to love Demon." And it's like, I am. And then so I said that to Leo. He's like, "Duh, nah. you know, we're, we've all read that, Gibson. Where that? Where? Where have you been?" So uh, I thought maybe Leo would have any other ideas. Uh, to, to me, these just been. You know, I mean, I'm a sci-fi fanatic. This is a little more real. And as he said, you know, it really could happen and technically accurate. I think those are the things that Quentin said he specifically liked about Demon and Freedom TM. And, and I'm I, that's sort of not the kind of stuff I normally read, although I certainly have. I am loving these. Now, I, I know Daniel Suarez is uh, getting close to finishing the third book in that installment. So, I mean, we whoa, can... whoa, 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 whoa. Is it the third of of? This it's I mean, a new it's, book. I should I should be careful in, in saying it is part of the uh, in the installment because I actually don't know how much in that uh, universe it takes place. But I know it exists in that same arena. Let's put it. Oh, and Leo said he's going to have him on. Yeah, we're going to try to get him on. Definitely. Um, cool. I don't know that there's a whole lot else besides Zero Day by Mark Rusinovich, uh yeah. that's really like this. I mean, this is sort of a a new. Uh, a new genre budding out. I mean, there, there's Neuromancer huh. and, and you know, there's there's traditional cyberpunk. All the old classics, Yeah, right. and Cory Doctorow, uh, one of my favorite Cory Doctorow stories is when sysadmins ruled the Earth uh, about, you know, sort of this disaster happening and the sysadmins are the only people that can communicate with each other uh, for various things. So there, there, there's some stuff out there, but really not, not a lot. Uh, I've heard about Fatal System Error by Joseph Mim, but I've never read it. That would be the only one that I could I could throw out there. Okay, cool. Well, that wraps it up. Uh, thank you, uh, Steve, for allowing me to, to fill in for Leo. I know he'll be back uh, next week, barring getting selected for the jury, which I know... You, you did a great job, as always, well, Tom, you. and you, you powered through these questions, so that was great. You can find Steve Gibson uh, all over the internet, but with the place you got to look is grc.com. Uh, that's where you find Spinrite. That's where you find Shields Up. Uh, that's where you find all the stuff going on. In fact, the new uh, not dog herder, but the sound blaster is available. You, you can find the link there as well. Uh, anything else uh, we should mention before we go? I think we got it. Our listeners know about uh, Spinrite that pays all my bills, and I really appreciate the support of those who purchased it even when they don't need it. And uh, next week, unless some strange disaster befalls us i plan to do another installment of our how the internet works probably talking about icmp and udp protocols so we'll have a little bit of a uh, of an interesting deep tech propeller head episode once you, again you may or may not realize you've run into udp protocols out there so that's a good one to pay attention to all right thanks we're, we're talking we're, we're talking over one right now as a matter of fact that's right exactly <laughs> all right thanks everybody for watching you can find us at twit.tv slash and Leo will be back next week, we hope. See you then. Security now.